Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. Today on 30 Minutes, we continue with excerpts from the closing celebration of Raices Taillere's July 2015 exhibition, Chubasco, a tribute to our annual monsoon. The event featured readings by author Margaret Regan and music by Pablo Peregrina. Special guest author Margaret Regan read passages from her book, Detained and Deported. The award-winning investigative reporter's new book is an intimate look at the people ensnared by the U.S. detention and deportation system, the largest in the world. Drawing on years of reporting in the Arizona-Mexico borderlands, journalist Margaret Regan tells their poignant stories. Regan demonstrates how increasingly draconian detention and deportation policies have broadened police powers while enriching a private prison industry whose profits are derived from human suffering. She also documents the rise of resistance, profiling activists and young immigrant dreamers who are fighting for the rights of the undocumented. Margaret Regan is the author of the award-winning book, The Death of Jocelyn, Immigration Stories from the Arizona Borderlands, a 2010 Southwest Book of the Year. An editor and writer at the Tucson Weekly, Regan has won many regional and national prizes for her immigration reporting. Pablo Peregrina is a troubadour by trade. The Sonoran-born Peregrina has released two CDs of original music, border stories and songs, and traveling souls. As a human rights activist and volunteer, Pablo strives to create awareness through music. Of first, author Margaret Regan, followed by Pablo Peregrina. This story I'm going to read is a deportation story. And uh, I mentioned the day I met Gustavo down in the Comedor, and that was the first time I really started noticing that a lot of the people who were stuck down in Nogales across the border are people who have lived in the United States for a long time. When I was researching my earlier book, many of them were first-time border crossers, young people who were just trying their luck in the United States for the first time. But what everybody who works in that field and works down there, the volunteers find is that more and more of these are people who have been deported and the reason they're there is because they're trying to get back home the way Gustavo was. So this is a, a deportation story. One block from the looming border wall in the gritty border town of Nogales, Sonora, customers in the lunchtime crowd at Leo's Cafe were reveling in a holiday atmosphere. It was September 12, 2012 just four days before Mexico's Dia de la Independencia, and the place was gaily decorated with plastic bunting in patriotic red, white, and green. Mexican flags sprouted everywhere, sticking up in vases of colorful paper flowers, poking out of a wreath by the cash register. Husbands and wives, grandmothers and grandfathers, little kids in tow, were getting the celebration started early over plates of carne asada in the middle of the workday. One adoring abuelita carried her baby granddaughter over to see the birds in a big cage on the floor. The baby's eyes popped at the sight of three bright yellow pajaros fluttering inside. Elena Santiago seemed to be the only one at Leo's in low spirits. 
She looked down at her slice of birthday cake and smiled wanly. It wasn't much, but that little sliver of chocolate with pink icing on top was just about the best thing that had happened to her lately. Her American friends, Lori Melrood and Blake Gentry, immigrant advocates from Tucson, were trying to cheer her up with a hearty lunch. Her 40th birthday had been a few days before, and Blake had conspired with the waiter to deliver the cake to the table. Blake had even checked out, ducked out into the crowded noontime streets of Nogales to buy candles for the surprise fiesta. The waiter lit all six candles and Elena le leaned in to blow out the flames. Unbeknownst to her, they were trick velas. Each time she blew a candle out, it flickered right back on. She attacked the candles playfully, pulled them out of the cake, and doused them in a glass of water with a laugh. The moment of levity was brief. A first grader at a nearby table ventured away from her parents to peek at the fluttering birds. The little girl was wearing her school uniform, a navy blue jumper, and her black hair was pulled back into a thick braid that trailed down her back. She bent down to look inside the cage and then grinned, showing the gap where her front teeth should have been. Pajaros, she called to her parents, birds. Elena looked over at the happy child and her beaming parents, then turned away. She had two kids of her own, a boy, 15-year-old Luis, and, a little, and little joy Camila, just two. They were up in Phoenix, out of her reach, wrenched away from her the day ice descended on her home and hauled her away. She hadn't seen either of the children in almost a year, since the day she was deported from the United States and dumped down here over the border in Mexico. It was on the 3rd of, of November, Elena said in Spanish, slumping a little at the, table at, at the table at Leo's. Ice came to my house. They didn't come inside. It was a school day and Elena was up early as usual in her rental house in Glendale, getting her family ready for the day. She had her job at a store to get to Luis would be going off to high school, and little Camila would tag along with her mom to work. Among the million morning tasks she faced as a single working mom, she had to feed the pets. The family had a whole menagerie of animals. Two dogs, two cats, two turtles, she said proudly. I bought them for my kids. I had a big yard. When she went out back to tend to the pets, she heard odd noises coming from out in front of the house. She came back in, and when Luis had his backpack on and Camila was zipped into her jacket, Elena opened the front door and saw what she most feared. A platoon of Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents, enforcement agents, armed and ominous, were gathered outside. A fleet of law enforcement vehicles idled in the road. They closed the street like I was a criminal, she said, trembling at the memory. There were a lot of cars, a lot of agents. Elena was terrified, but she buckled her toddler into her car seat and shooed her son into the car. At the moment that she started to get behind the wheel, an agent called out her name on a megaphone, broadcasting at full blast for all the neighbors to hear. Elena Santiago, he bellowed. Elena Santiago. The officers came over and handcuffed her in full sight of the kids, marched her over to one of their SUVs and locked her into the back. Seeing their mother in the hands of the police, both kids started screaming. 
The police turned on their car radios, so I couldn't hear the children, Elena said. Inside the ICE SUV, over the din of the radio blaring and the kids wailing, the officers started asking questions. Are you pregnant? Sick? Taking medicine? Then they came to the most fateful. Who are you going to leave the kids with? Elena had no one who could help her. Her mother was dead. The kids' fathers were out of the picture. She had only one real friend, a woman who was in no position to take in Luis and Camila. So the agents called Arizona's Child Protective Services, the agency that takes abused, neglected, and abandoned children and puts them into foster care. In short order, a CPS woman arrived and leaned into the window. Do you want to sign the children over to us, she asked. I said, yes, temporarily, Elena told me. Armed with the document that Elena signed, the CPS worker turned to the kids. Luis, always an attentive big brother, cradled the screaming Camila in his arms and climbed into the CPS van. In that anguished moment of seeing her kids taken from her, Elena suddenly remembered the family pets. I said to one of the agents, what about my dogs? My dogs are going to die. The agent, she said, turned to her and sneered. Who cares about your dogs? Elena trembled as she remembered his casual cruelty. It was all for my kids, she said, of the animals. Ten months later, she had no idea what had become of the dogs and the cats and the turtles, not to mention the family's furniture and electronics and clothes and car. The family, divided into two vehicles, went their separate ways, the children to CPS, their mother to ICE. Elena watched out of the window of the ICE SUV as the kids' van disappeared into the distance. She hadn't even been allowed to say goodbye. At the ICE lockup, two officers tried to talk her into voluntarily signing an order of deportation. She knew better than to agree to be deported across the international line, far from her kids, and she refused again and again. I kept saying, I'm not going to sign. No voy a firmar. Frustrated, she said, the agents took matters into their own hands, literally. They grabbed her arms, one man pulled her left arm behind her back, and the other grabbed her right. That other guy put my finger in the ink and forced me, she said, demonstrating how the agent coerced her into making a fingerprint on the paper, the equivalent of a signature. They made me sign, Elena said. They made me sign. Now the agents and the U.S. government had everything they needed to deport Elena from the country where she lived since she was a young teen and away from the country where she'd given birth to her two children, both of them U.S. citizens. Within hours, Elena said, ICE put her on a bus headed for the Mexican border. Three hours and 180 miles later, she walked south over the line with other deportees past the dusty canyon separating Novales, Arizona, from Novala, Sonora, past the border wall into Mexico, a country where she had not set foot in 27 years. She would get no news of her children for a month. In Novales, Elena found herself in a shifting community of deportees all of them suddenly stranded in a confusing town that few of them knew. 
Elena was used to Phoenix, a wide open city sprawling out over the flat desert between the mountains. Its millions of residents, Elena included, routinely negotiating its boulevards by car. Nogales was completely different. A teeming hill town of about 212,000 people, Nogales was jammed with pedestrians, street vendors, and cars jockeying for position on narrow, bumpy streets. Taxis honked and music spilled out of the stores. Hemmed in on the north by the border wall, the town climbed up and down crazily steep hills. Some 55,000 deportees are marched across the line into Nogales most years. In 2011, when Elena was deported, 54,977 deportados flooded the town, the equivalent of a quarter of the city's population. They had become a familiar sight in town. The border crossers who'd been caught in Arizona by the border patrol and quickly returned were still dusty from the desert, their mochilas backpacks strapped to their backs. The detainees who'd been in Eloy or Florence lugged all their worldly goods in the clear plastic bags issued by ICE. Elena didn't even have that much. She had only the clothes on her back. Like many of her fellow deportees, she had lived in the United States for years and was traumatized by the abrupt separation from her family. She was desperate to return north. She stuck close to the border near a soup kitchen and the migrant shelters. Typically, the guests had to leave these refuges at first light. Winter and summer, the displaced men and women spent dreary days in the elements, idling outside offices, roaming the streets. They sat on benches outside the office of Grupo Beta, the Mexican border force whose mission is to help migrants. Or they took naps in the cemetery, sleeping behind gravestones to escape the scrutiny of the local police. Elena found her way to a shelter at the bus station, right by the border wall, and stayed for a month and a half. It was a rough, bare-bones affair in a shabby set of buildings, but it provided her with a bed. In theory, those who stayed there were supposed to have bus tickets, but the rules were lo loosely applied. The men slept in a crumbling trailer outfitted with bunk beds, and the women on double beds and floor mats in an upstairs room reached by a set of rickety stairs. Temperatures in Nogales dropped down to the 20s at night in winter when Elena was there, and the shelter showers were outdoors, open to the sky. Elena was afraid in the crowded city. Twice, she told me later, men had tried to drag her into their cars. The Sinaloa drug cartel controlled the region. Known by migrants as La Mafia, the narcotraficantes had expanded into the lucrative human smuggling trade. The Federales, armed Mexican soldiers, were in town too. When we were at the birthday lunch at Leo's, we saw a truckload of helmeted soldiers bouncing down the rough street, their rifles propped up aimed at the sky. It's hard to know what might have happened to Elena if she hadn't encountered some journalists from Los Angeles they were who were in town interviewing deportees. They told her about no more deaths, the human rights group out of Tucson that helps deportees in Nogales and migrants in the desert. The volunteers ran a telephone ministry outdoors at Grupo Beta and at another shelter, Albergue San Juan Bosco, proffering cell phones to deportees to phone home. A month into her time in Nogales, Elena went to the volunteers for help. One of them was Hannah Hafter, an indefatigable activist who seemed always to be everywhere deportees were. 
Elena told her, told Hannah that she hadn't talked to her kids in a month and didn't even know where they were. The only number she had was for CPS and she hadn't been able to connect to a live person when she called on a borrowed phone. Hannah got in touch with Lori and Lori quickly worked her contacts at CPS. Within days, she found out the whereabouts and phone numbers of Luis and Camila. Luis was in a group home in Glendale and Camila was living with foster parents in a suburban town way east of Phoenix. When Hannah got the numbers, she handed Elena a phone and for the first time in a long and painful month, Elena was able to speak with her children. Hannah reported later that when Elena heard Camila's high-pitched voice say, Mama, she just cried and cried and cried. It was like you could see this darkness lift off her. You are listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson with excerpts from the closing celebration of Raices Taller's July 2015 exhibition, Chubasco, a tribute to our annual monsoon. The event featured readings by author Margaret Regan and music by Pablo Peregrina. So Elena's story is long and complicated and... Um, I can tell you there's one piece of happy news. Um, she did get her little girl back, but um, the state moved to sever her parental rights because they said um, because she was deported, she was a bad mother because she wasn't available to take care of her child. And you probably know in, in a foster care and adoption, um, they, they don't want children that young to live a whole life in foster care, so there are very strict federal rules that the child's in foster care for a certain amount of time. The state moves to sever their parental rights. And um, again, uh, some very kind people from No More Deaths helped her find an attorney. And I was present for it. She was not allowed to attend her own hearing about severing her parental rights because that was in Phoenix and she was a deportee. And I, I attended with her in Novalis. She had a phone. A Mexican government office allowed her to come in there. And you can imagine the phone went out a couple of times. She was not allowed to speak. She was only allowed to hear what they were saying about her. And you know the state was moving to sever her parental rights and to take Camille away from her permanently. And um, there was this one lone voice and all that that we could hear an attorney, she had been assigned an attorney by the state also, and the attorney said she has never done anything to show that she doesn't love this baby and she's been a good mother. So ultimately the judge allowed the child to be taken back to Novellus, and I was present for that reunion. And that was a wonderful thing, but you know, it's not entirely a happy ending. That child was separated from her mother for 14 months. And as Hannah Hafter pointed out, um, by the time mother and child were reunited, they didn't even speak the same language. They had not put the child in a Spanish-speaking home. So, and I, I visited um, Elena in Mexico a couple more times after that, and you can imagine the struggle that she was having down there, trying to uh, keep going with a pretty headstrong four-year-old and she was getting little jobs in Novellus and she never saw her son again. She has not in all these years seen him. And one day when I was there, I mean, those of us who have raised children know like four-year-olds, they say they're pretty tough customers. And the mother scolded uh, Camila for getting her dress dirty this one afternoon and she put her little hands on her hips and she said, you're not my mother. You can't tell me that. 
So, you know, these kinds of family separations, even though she got that child back, um, we can't really know what the impact of that is. So, um, I don't know whether I should read another story or is uh, Pablo wanting to go back on or? <laughs> I'm not sure. Oh, by the way, thanks so much to Raisa's Tayet for inviting me to speak tonight and for having Pablo, really appreciate it. Hope everybody takes a look at the monsoon art. Art's working hard to uh, bring us some rain, but <laughs> no luck yet. Yes? Can you uh, comment on your take on the streamlined process? Oh, okay. Well, um, it's a pretty astonished thing to go and see in the United States of America a mass trial where 70 people are in chains and handcuffs. Um, he had, the question was about the streamlined trials, which any of us can see any day in the federal courthouse in downtown Tucson. 70 or so uh, migrants are randomly selected by Border Patrol to get arrested, although lately they are trying to find people who have crossed several times, so the charges are more serious against them. Um, you know, most people have a different faith. They don't get taken to court for crossing the border, but this, the idea was that there would be deterrence and that people would be convicted. So if you go to this trial, um, they're allowed to have, they have to have an attorney because it's a criminal charge. And they have about 10 minutes to speak with their attorney. It's a court-appointed attorney. And the attorneys usually have about seven clients that they're trying to see all during the morning. Um, and then when you go to the trial at 1.30 in the afternoon, they're all still dirty from the desert and um, from having been in Border Patrol for a couple of days, which, you know, Border Patrol is really a pretty terrible place for uh, people being held there. Um, and then they're filed in in chains and they all plead guilty one by one. They always say culpable. Because um, as a lawyer explained it to me, they really don't have a choice other than pleading guilty because if they plead it not guilty um, under the previous law that you're not allowed to get bail, now you can get bail, they would be in jail for a long time when they decided to fight their case. And if they lost their case in the end, they would probably get a longer jail term than what they get. So they all say culpable, culpable, culpable. It's amazing to see 70 or 80 people. Um, yeah, so it's, I mean, it's definitely, it's streamlined justice, right? It's not like people being taken, having their legal rights carefully explained to them and getting a real, some of the, one attorney I interviewed seemed to be pretty aggressive trying to get people off, but um, generally speaking, you know, I mean, everybody pleads guilty, so when you have that result in a criminal trial, I mean, I think that says something right there. Um, I don't think they, they were planning for a long time to expand it, and um, so far we haven't seen that has stayed where it is. Yeah, and by the way, most of those people, they get convicted for 30 or 60 or 90 days, depending on their previous history, and they're all taken to a private prison. So this is another example of um, where business comes into this, you know, the stricter the laws we have about immigration, the more some people are going to profit. So that's my view. Uh, Jacqueline? Oh, well, well, this Yolanda, I have a whole chapter about her and all the finances of it. Um, I think it, they get about $125 a day for her. 
But, you know, Corrections Corporation of America got that quickie contract to build those family prisons in Texas, and they were charging, they are charging, all those people are still there, $300 a day, because they said, well, they have to offer so much more. So um, they've made a very good profit. The, the other company is GEO, and they operate private criminal prisons primarily. That's their background, that's their training, that's what they do. And the immigration thing is kind of a sideline, but that's been very profitable for them. Besides the profit angle, their orientation is criminal confinement. And the people in the detention centers, it's very important to say some of them, yes, were picked up on criminal charges originally, but they have already discharged those in a prison someplace if they were gonna have them, just like the Panda Express people. When they're in the detention centers, they are not supposed to be being treated like criminals. They are being held solely for the purpose of ensuring that they arrive at their immigration hearings. But um, I spent a little bit of time up in Eloy and um, it's identical to a prison. And I'm sure you've heard stories, uh, the medical care is quite poor. While I was working on this book, uh, two people committed suicide in Eloy within two days of each other two young uh, Guatemalans, a young woman and a young man. And it turned out that um, Corrections Corporation of America wasn't even complying with ICE's own standards for suicide prevention. It sounds familiar like this case in Texas we've been reading about this week about Sa Sandra Bland. There were standards in place and they were not meeting the standards of suicide prevention. And it was amazing to me that year that I was writing it and the ICE woman said, well, we are now negotiating with Corrections Corporation of America to bring their standards up to, to where they're supposed to be. And I don't even know why that word negotiating was in there. We're paying them to do this job for us. And um, they seem to have a lot of leeway. Um, they use uh, solitary confinement as punishment. Uh, one woman that I interviewed uh, who had been in Eloy, she was 61 years old, which seems pretty old for a detainee and she couldn't stand it. She started going into panic attacks. She developed terrible hives. and um, She kept going to the nurse and saying, I have this, that, and the other. And the nurse said, I'm sick of you. If you come back here one more time, we're putting you in solitary. And they do, if people protest, uh, this, a bunch of dreamers ended up there. That was a well-publicized thing two summers ago. And um, they were you know, educated young people, very activist, and a couple of them stood up on the table and said, you know, food strike, food strike. And they popped the two liters of that into solitary, two young women. So um, so it's they're treated as though they're in a prison. And um, everybody's, you know, they, the immigrants report that the medical care is very poor. And I think that's true in our prison system also. Does this Pablo want to come back? Or I could read another story. <laughs> this uh, next song I'm going to sing is called these shoes. Uh, and if these shoes had a voice, what would they say? Just speaking as far as migration. And the inspiration was this that I, I was in uh, Amado visiting my friend Valerie James. And she had a prototype of these shoe prints in about this far, this much, which now it's a sculpture at Southside. And I carried that inspiration for three years. And these shoes, if they had a voice, you think about your ancestors.
these shoes just to dance and people smile it's fashion's brought many joys if these shoes had a voice many stories would be told they came different walks of life from the young the weak and the old a traveling shoe living imprints with his soul carrying a living soul carrying have been listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson with excerpts from the closing celebration of Raices Taller's July 2015 exhibition Chupasco, a tribute to our annual monsoon. The event featured readings by author Margaret Regan and music by Pablo Peregrina. This has been part two of a multi-part series. I'm Amanda Shager.